Namo Myoho Renge Kyo, Namo Myoho Renge Kyo, Namo Myoho Renge Kyo. Hi friends, thanks for being here, thanks for your practice. I hope this finds you in good health and secure. We are in the uh, Leon Hurwitz translation of the Lotus Sutra. And I've talked about its accolades before. We have gotten a good start into the introduction chapter. And so, how about we get right into it? At that time, the Buddha emitted a glow from the tuft of white hair between his brows that illuminated 18,000 worlds to the east, omitting none of them, reaching downward as far as the Avicii, hell, and upward as far as the Akanista gods, the uh, cosmos, yeah? In these worlds there could be fully seen the six kinds of living beings in those lands. There could also be seen the Buddhas present in those lands, and the sutradharmas preached by those Buddhas could be heard. Can you tell already how different this translation sounds to the BDK? It's, a, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the same source language, same source uh, translation, could be interpreted by the English language, and let's be honest here, by the, the authors, the academicians, the translators, cultures, biases, the way they construct sentences of meaning from their linguistic upbringings, they differ greatly. And still, as much as that might seem uh, a great obstacle or um, confusing or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Difficult to feel authentic. Yeah? The meaning still comes right through if you're looking for the meaning instead of getting hung up on the words, yeah? Now, for instance, I just uh, added an entry into Volume 2 of Buddhism Reference on, the, uh, on just this thing, the, the tuft of hair, the, the uh, Buddha eye, the third eye. The, it's t discussed in many different ways depending on translations as well as sutras, yeah? So what's all this about? Like this said a glow, whereas immediately we heard it was a ray of light in the BDK translation, yeah? And yet uh, in the same sentence, illuminated 18,000 worlds to the east, omitting none of them. That's the biggest clue, and I would argue the most useful translation, because whenever we hear of the Buddha emitting this light, whether it's from his third eye, his tuft of hair, or his top knot, because we heard that too. We must recall early Buddhist definitions of these characteristics of a Buddha, right? The long ears, the, the long, broad tongue, right? The tuft of hair, the third eye, the top knot, all of these things signify 
again, Buddhism is about the mind, signify the uses or the transcendence of the skanda, right? The, the, the samsaric consciousnesses, the physical world, and transmigrating, transcending, transcendent powers, right? See, using these abilities in the mind, not the I itself, the physical eye and its interpretation of what it sees, that's samsara, that's data collection, that's identification. But the metaphor of that seeing and collection of information moved to an unlimited, unencumbered, liberated mind. Therefore, don't need an eye, just projecting directly from the mind whether it's the tuft of hair or the top knot, the capacity, limitless understanding, limitless seeing, limitless, broad, long reaching aspects of the Buddha mind. Right? The tongue, the teacher of the Dharma, reaching out to the 50th person has not diminished. Right? We've read that example. Right? The, the tuft of hair emitting enlightenment, right? Light figures a lot in this. Light is just energy, limitless, right? Unformed, just shared amongst the assembly. Isn't that what happens? We'll, we'll run into that here in a minute. Very useful to remember, like the ear getting longer, not because the physical ear is better, but because the aspect of mind that hears is now expanded and therefore limitless in its, remember the bodhisattva, hearer of the world sounds, a personage of this feature of the Buddha mind. See, all of this comes together. We just have to be unisolated in our study. So, you know, like so many things in the world today, you got to do, you got to read our book, you got to come to our church, you got to come to our club, you got to come to, because all the other ones, they're no good. That's not the way to study anything, really. But certainly in Buddhism, this holds absolutely true. Because unless you study outside the Lotus Sutra, these subtle meanings of these references of which the Lotus Sutra is built upon, they will escape you, and you will make the mistake, samsarically, of taking them as read, literally, in other words. Instead of constantly seeing the analogies, the metaphors, the similes, that's all skillful means. Hmm? Okay, let's go on. There could also be seen the Buddhas present in those lands and the uh, Sutra Dharmas preached by those Buddhas could be heard. At the same time, there could be seen those amongst the bhikshus, bhikshunis, upasakas, and upasikas who through practice had attained the path. 
Further, there could be seen the various background causes and conditions of the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, their various degrees of belief and understanding, and their various appearances with which they trod the Bodhisattva path. Trod the Bodhisattva path. We've read that as coursing the Bodhisattva path, or coursing as Bodhisattvas in samsara, trod the Bodhisattva path. In other words, a samsaric reference, yeah? There could also be those Buddhas who achieved parinirvana, perfect extinction. I love that he uses the word extinction. Further, there could be seen how, after the Buddha's parinirvana, a stupa, a recolary mound, of the seven jewels, there's that seven jewels. By the way, I did make an entry into volume two of the Buddhism reference on the seven jewels. Important to us, because you hear me all the time talking about Namo Myohorengekyo, seven characters, yeah? And I've covered that in the first volume of Buddhism reference. But in the second volume, I will show you the history and uh, inclusion of, I think, three different sources on how they define the seven jewels literally, although they allude to the mental function of them. They still show very samsaric examples, and they track. Nichiren, for you and I in this modern era, has shown us that Shakyamuni provided us with a Dharani with the title of each chapter and the title of the book of the collection itself, Myoho Rengekyo, that by adding our presence and our invocation, our dedication to this method of self-enlightenment renders seven characters and they track with the seven jewels or jeweled or we hear it repeated throughout many, many different uses, yeah? It's the Daimoku. Fascinating, yeah? Don't know if it helps you practice, but anything I think that raises your confidence, your your aha, your continuity, your 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 sense of knowing the entirety of the teachings is part and parcel of your invocation of them. Does that not raise your confidence? It does mine. Let's continue. At that time, the Bodhisattva Maitreya had this thought. Now that the world-honored one has shown these extraordinary signs, we must ask for what reason we have had these portents. These portents. Why are they portents? Because the projection from the mind, the Buddha eye of Shakyamuni, has affected, penetrated, and given everyone in the assembly a visual experience, a mindful experience of what purification looks like. Experiences. Hmm? Whoa, that's what life really looks like, unencumbered by identification. Wow. What do we do with that? That was amazing. I'm not sure I understand it, right? Those kind of things. So Maitreya says, now that the Buddha, the world-honored one, has entered into samadhi, 
whom shall I question about these rare apparitions, beyond reckoning and discussion? Who can answer? Who else can I ask? So evidently, as Shakyamuni emitted this Buddha wisdom, this experience, this Dharma, he was deep in focused concentration. Hmm? So Maitreya, having experienced these things, I have to ask about this, and he's, he's meditating right now. I don't want to interrupt him. Who else could I ask? Further, he thought, this Manjushri, the Dharma prince, having already approached and served incalculable Buddhas in the past, must surely see these rare signs. I will now ask him. At that time, the bhikshus, bhikshunis, upasakas, upasikas, as well as the, the, uh, the, the skyborn deities, dragons, ghosts, all of the various personages and the like, Then he questioned the Bodhisattva Manjushri, saying, For what reason do we have these wondrous and supernatural signs, a great ray emitted, which illuminates 18,000 lands to the east, making visible all the adornments of those Buddha lands? Thereupon the Bodhisattva Maitreya, wishing to restate this meaning, questioned in gathas, a form of verse, right? Manjushri. Why from the leader's tuft of white hair does a great ray shine in all directions, raining down mandarabas and manjusaka flowers, and with a breeze of sandalwood scent gladden many hearts? For this reason, the earth is wholly purified, and this world trembles in six different ways. Now the four bands in the assembly are all delighted, their bodies and minds pleased, as if gaining something unprecedented. When the ray from between his brows illuminates the east, 18,000 lands are all in the color of gold. From the Avicii hell to the pinnacle of existence, in the various worlds, the living beings on the six courses, the six lower realms of the ten worlds, right? What they face in birth and death, the conditions arising from their good and evil deeds, the pleasant and unpleasant they uh, receive in retribution the, the uh, what I call the uh, repercussions of karma influenced karma yeah all are seen herein I also see Buddhas the lions among saintly lords preaching the scriptures the supremely subtle their voices are pure emitting delicate sounds with which they teach bodhisattvas in numberless myriads of myriads millions of myriads their brahma sound is subtle and profound making men to desire to hear it each in his own world preaches the true dharma for various causes and conditions and by resort to numberless parables clarifying the buddha dharma and enlightening the living beings if a man entering woe sickens of old age illness and death for his sake, they preach nirvana, bringing to an end the uttermost vestige of woe. If a man has merit formerly having made offerings to Buddhas, and if he resolves to seek a superior dharma, 
for the sake they preach the rank of a perceiver of conditions, a prachyaka Buddha. If there is a son of a Buddha cultivating many kinds of conduct, seeks unexceeded wisdom, for him they preach the pure path. Manjushri, I dwelling here, have seen and heard things of this sort reaching to the thousands of millions, as many as they are, I will now tell them briefly. So you can see the entire teachings encapsulated already in this question of Maitreya's. Is he not, is he not eliciting the very thing that the propagation, the spreading of this Buddha wisdom accomplishes? Right? And in so doing, releases people from the cycle of birthday, 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 birthday. Or more, the important word there is releases. It's not the birthday, 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 that's the problem. Moment to moment, moment to moment. It's how we identify with, permanentize, hang on to, craving, clinging to those moments rather than being in those moments and flowing with the great continuous instantiations of energy that we are. Then all of that other stuff, it just falls away. We don't have to actively destroy it. Annihilation is another word I've put into volume two, talking about this very thing. We use words in language in these translations like annihilations, destroy, revulsion. But that's not an act. It's not an action that we take. It's a result of the action we get from instantiating our Buddha. It's very different, right? You wouldn't think it because those words have so much charisma attached to them, the baggage, as it were. It's just that when you're not focused on that and you're focused on the actual engine of life, those, they just don't, they don't get created anymore. They're not there. They are, by themselves, their very nature, annihilated. It's not an action we take to annihilate. It's an action we take to clarify, purify our perception. Then... That stuff just ceases to exist. Ceases, there's that word, Four Noble Truths. See, he's been teaching the same stuff since he started. It's just a matter of comprehension, capacity. Okay, let's go on. I dwelling here have seen and heard things of this sort reaching to the thousands of millions, as many as they are. I will now tell them briefly. I see in that land bodhisattvas like Ganges' sands through various causes and conditions seeking the Buddha's path. Some perform the act of giving, presenting gold, silver, coral, pearls, money, jewels, seven variety, no doubt, <laughs> precious seashells, agate, diamonds and other treasures, bondmen and bondwomen, wagons and chariots, hand-drawn carriages, and palaquins ornamented with jewels. These in joy they give, applying them to the path of the Buddha. And 
praying to attain this vehicle. The first in these three worlds, which the Buddhas praise, now there are bodhisattvas by whom jeweled four-horse carriages with spears and shields and with flowered canopies arrayed on their seats are presented. Then I see bodhisattva by whom bodily flesh, hands, and feet, even wives and children, are presented in quest of the unexcelled path. Now, do they actually cut off their hands and feet and offer up their women like prostitutes as gifts to the Buddha? Of course not. What they're talking about is their samsaric attachment to those things. Right? Remember Medicine King? He didn't literally burn his arms. What he burned was his skandhas, his avarice, his, his need for, right? Touch, feeling, the pleasures that, from the senses, right? He offered them up as inadequate, limited, so that in purity, in a pure mind, conception of moment-to-moment -moment existence, the pleasures, if you will, of the senses, the, the knowing, the knowledge, the experience of, is limitless, far more amazing than our uses in samsara. But you have to have conviction in order to see that as a possibility, yeah? In quest of the unexcelled path, Again, I see bodhisattvas by whom heads and eyes, torsos and limbs are joyously presented in quest of the Buddha's wisdom. Once again, we don't behead ourselves. We transcend our samsaric impression of our head, our eyes, our so on and so forth. Hmm? That's the transcendent power. See, there's no magic or mysticism here. It's how the mind functions to provide us clarity or attachment. It's a paradigm shift. Manjusri, I see princes going before the Buddha to ask of the unexcelled path, then abandoning pleasant lands, hmm? palaces and halls, courtiers and concubines, shaving their heads and hair and donning the Dharma garb. Now I see bodhisattvas who became bhikshus, dwelling alone in serenity, taking pleasure in reciting the scriptures. Then I see bodhisattvas striving with courage and determination, entering deep into the mountains and aspiring to the path of the Buddha. Again, now what is the path of the Buddha? Isn't it the story of Shakyamuni that he traveled India and spoke to people everywhere in their own native tongues, dialects, and so forth. Yeah, he didn't isolate himself. So obviously there's some of, uh, this is Maitreya, right? Talking about the history of Buddhist teachings because early on for many, many years uh, in the earlier teachings of Buddhism, there were many analogies. Look up uh, the rhinoceros poem. I, it may actually be a separate sutra but I know it as a poem, the uh, rhinoceros, the lone rhinoceros. You know, Adrian Bellew did a song in the 70s, I think it was, 
uh, of King Crimson, if you're into that older generation of rock, uh, experimental prog rock. Adrian Bellew did this song called I'm a Lone Rhinoceros. There aren't a hell of a lot of us. <laughs> I believe that song was very much in homage to that poem, Wandering uh, Through the Forest Alone, the Rhinoceros. It was a kind of a meditation on meditation. The practicants early on were trying to understand their own mind. They didn't have the capacity yet to abstract what we do in this era. So that was part, very much a large part of the earlier teaching. So you can see here a bit of an homage to it from uh, Maitreya in this uh, recitation for his question to Manjushri, right? Again, I see them separating themselves from desire. That was the whole purpose of isolation, right? Constantly dwelling in desolation and serenity, profoundly cultivating dhyana, concentration, meditation, and trances, and attaining the five supernatural penetrations. Then again, I see bodhisattva, bodhisattvas secure in dhyana, their palms joined, right? Palms together, folded hands, their palms joined with thousands of myriads of gathas praising the Dharma kings. Yet again, I see bodhisattvas of profound knowledge and firm resolve, able to question the Buddhas, to hear, to understand thoroughly, to receive, to keep. I also see sons of the Buddhas fully endowed with concentration and wisdom by resort to incalculable parables for the multitude's sake, preaching the Dharma, taking pleasure in preaching the Dharma, converting the bodhisattvas. Boy, this is a much longer translation than the one we read in the BDK, isn't it? Smashing Mara's hosts and beating the Dharma drum. Further, I see bodhisattvas calm and silent in their quietude, revered by gods and dragons, yet taking no pleasure therein, Again, I see bodhisattvas dwelling in forests and emitting rays with which they rescue sufferers from the pains of hell and cause them to enter the path of the Buddhas. Propagation, yeah? Again, I see Buddha sons who have never slept going through forests in earnest quest of the Buddha's path. I see further those perfect in disciplined conduct, faultless in bearing, pure as precious gems, with these attributes seeking the Buddha's path. Again, I see sons of the Buddhas dwelling in the strength of forbearance, who, though men of overweening pride, hatefully revile and beat them, can bear all without exception. Thus seeking the Buddha's path. You see these different personages of, again, immeasurable means. These different practicants of Buddhism whose lives are their lives, their karmic paths differ, but their goal is the same. Just like you and I, or me, you and me, yeah. 
Again, I see bodhisattvas who have separated themselves from all manner of frivolity and from deluded followers who personally approach those of wisdom, single-mindedly removing distractions. Single-mindedly, it appears again. On mountain and in forest, composing their thoughts for millions of thousands of myriads of years, thereby seeking the Buddha's path. Now I see bodhisattvas by whom delicacies of food and drink and a hundred varieties of broths and herbs are offered to the Buddha and his Sangha, the brotherhood of monks, by whom famous robes and superior garments, their value in the thousands of myriads or utterly priceless robes, are presented to the Buddha and his Sangha, by whom thousands of myriads of millions of kinds of houses of jeweled sandalwood, as well as being as much fine bedding, are presented to the Buddha and his Sangha, by whom immaculate gardens and groves, their blossoms and fruits in full bloom, with running springs and bathing, bathing ponds, are presented to the Buddha and his Sangha, by whom, with offerings such as these, supremely fine in many ways, and with joy untiring, the unexcelled path is sought. Now there are bodhisattvas who preach the dharma of quiet extinction, nirvana, in various ways instructing numberless living beings. Now I see bodhisattvas who view the nature of the dharmas, things, phenomena, as unmarked by duality, just like space. We need to take that apart a little bit, right? Unmarked by duality. So on the one hand, he says the dharmas are phenomena, things. I say, correctly understood, dharma is experience of. But let's see if he's not saying the same thing. He's saying dharmas, parenthetical things or phenomena, as unmarked by duality. If something is unmarked by duality, what does that actually mean? The, pri the, the, prima uh, the a priori of duality is is versus is not. So when something manifests from potential through formation into form, remember karma? Mm -hmm, that's karma. The resultant form is itself a duality because that form is actually tendencies and conditions of energy amalgamated into a form, which is what we samsarically perceive as static, made, there. And we attach all of our thinking to that illusion. It's an illusion because the reality is moment to moment to moment to moment. That instantiation is as empty as it is fast, an occurrence, an event that is already gone the moment it's contemplated. So in its true nature, all of these apparitions of things and phenomena are a momentary experience in the mind 
that though we in samsara experience them physically, right? Otherwise, I'd fall to, I don't know how far I'd fall because the earth would be a duality. It is as well. Everything in the cosmos. But the way I experience it is the key here. Do I experience it as something I hold? Therefore, I cling to it and crave for it to remain. Clinging, craving. Or do I see it for the utility and purpose and use of this moment and this moment and this moment and whether it was or is going to be, it doesn't matter. It's supporting my butt right now so that this camera can see me, blah, 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 right? It's, it's complex and it's subtle. And this is what he's talking about here, right? As unmarked by duality, just like space. And most of us would understand to this day space as empty. And yet, with the more we study quantum, the more we understand that that's a supremely active space. But it hasn't, the duality in space is when we see stuff. <laughs> it's happening all around us all the time, this pure mind. But we, with a sentient mind, can experience it as a consciousness. That's the whole game right there. Then I see sons of the Buddhas, you and I, and women are sons as well, just take it as read. Their minds attached to no objects. <laughs> With this subtle knowledge, seeking the unexcelled path. This is exactly what I'm talking about. It's also why I have an aversion to the word objects, because as it's pointed out right here, objects are things and phenomena with duality. So to say that the Gohonzon is the object in Buddhism is incorrect. It's an It's an action, yeah? It's an accomplishment, not a thing. You could say, well, Sifu, that's a phenomenon. Mm. Phenomena being used as a static thing. Hmm? Nothing is static. It's a portal. It's a transmigration. It's a shift. A paradigm shift toward a pure consciousness. Hmm? The Buddha mind. Manjushri, there are also bodhisattvas who after the Buddha's passage into extinction shall make offerings to his relics. Further, I see sons of the Buddhas making stupa shrines as numberless as Ganges' sands, with which to adorn the realms and their territories. Realms. Jeweled stupas to the lovely height of 5,000 Johannas. A Johanna here, he says, is several miles. It's a long distance. Both in length and breadth, 2,000 Johannas, every individual stupa shrine having on it a thousand banners, banners with jewels like intermingled dewdrops, their jeweled bells chiming in harmony, to which gods, dragons, and spirits, 
humans and non-humans, of sweet flowers and skillfully played music, constantly present offerings. Manjushri, the son of the sons of the Buddhas, in order to make offerings to the Sarira, adorn the stupa shrines, so that the realms of their territories in, and of themselves are of a most particularly refined beauty, like the king of divine trees when his blossoms open out. And this is all being seen, by the way, by virtue of this emitted light from Shakyamuni, right? Suddenly all of these things become clear, these efforts toward Buddhaness throughout the cosmos. Hmm? The Buddha has emitted a ray whereby I and the assembled multitude see these realms and territories variously and peculiarly fine. <laughs> I got a hit of myself. The Buddha's supernatural power, their wisdom, so is so rare that by the emission of a single pure beam, they illuminate incalculable realms. This is the amazing power of propagation, yes? Seeing this, we gain something we have never had. Son of the Buddha, O Manju, pray resolve the multitude's doubts. The fourfold multitude and joyous supplication looks up to you and me. Why has the world-honored one emitted this beam? O Buddha, son, make timely answer and resolving doubts cause joy. What profit is there in sending forth this ray? When the Buddha sat on the platform of the path, the Bodhimanda, what subtle dharmas he gained because he wished to set them forth and in order to confer prophecy, he showed us the Buddha lands, adorned and purified with many jewels, and he saw the Buddhas. The reason for all this is not a trifling one. Manju, you must know the fourfold multitude, my fourfold multitude, remember, uh, monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, fourfold. The dragons and the spirits look up to you, wondering what you will say to them. Okay, Manjushri, tell us what the hell we're supposed to do with this. This is, oh, it's amazing, it's profound. But now what? What do we do? It's quite a vision. Where are we time-wise? Ah, I gotta wrap it up. Let's go a little further, okay? At that time, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Manjushri said to the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Maitreya and the sundry great worthies Bodhisattvas, Good men, I surmise that the Buddha, the world-honored one, now wishes to preach the great Dharma to precipitate the great dharma rain, to blow the great dharma conch, to beat the great dharma drum, to set forth the great dharma doctrine. Right? This is the introduction chapter. He's setting the stage. He's saying, I'm going to answer your question here, Maitreya, by providing you the path to this. But here, let me give you a taste. First one's free. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But you see, 
no pun intended. He wants to get everyone's attention. He's saying this teaching is like no other. This is the ultimate teachings. There are no three vehicles, Shravakas and Pratyagabuddhas and Bodhisattva. There's only one. This one is the great vehicle. This is the path for all living beings, whatever your life condition. This will lead you swiftly and straight to the pure Buddha wisdom, Buddha mind, Buddha eye, Buddha whatever you want to call it, Buddha-ness. Hmm? You good men once before in the presence of past Buddhas, I saw this portent. When the Buddhas had emitted this light, straight away they preached the great Dharma. Thus, it should be understood that the present Buddha's display of light is also of this sort. It is because he wishes all living beings to be able to hear and know the Dharma, difficult of belief for all the worlds, that he displays this portent. And I'm going to stop here because it's a great, a great opportunity to mention that this is exactly why we are instructed whenever we start a dialogue about Buddhism, whether directly or indirectly, with somebody who's curious or asking about or simply comes into our presence, that we begin our discussion with the Daimoku. When we chant Daimoku Sancho, when we start a conversation about Buddhism with anyone, senior monk or casual curious observer, by chanting Namo Myoho Rengeko, Namo Myoho Rengeko, Namo Myoho Rengeko, try to do it with me, do it with me, get them to do it. You are essentially emitting the ray of Buddha light and encouraging them to receive it. From that point on in your discussion of that day, of that moment, will be illuminated, prepared to be properly understood. However you happen to mumble through it and however they happen to hear it will be affected, influenced by Namo Myo And then when we're done, we pay homage to that clarity and we make sure that we retroactively make sure that our speech and their understanding come together in a way that leads to their insights and their desire for enlightenment. To awaken their path to their enlightenment. Once again, Daimoku Sancho. That's what we're enacting, what we're talking about right here in the introduction. By example, Nietzsche picked up on this, yeah? So next time... We will get, uh, yeah, we'll get deeper into it. Good stuff. Kind of liking this translation. Yes, there's still some biases here, you know, that um, that sound so much religious. But um, I don't know. There's so much uh, good wordplay here in this translation. I think as long as we're mindful of it, we can get around it, right? It's somewhat annoying, but I think... You're getting sophisticated enough now to where you can uh, let, let that slide and understand the meaning 
the gist of the uh, the translation, the not just the translation, but the teaching itself. Yeah. All right. With that, thank you for supporting this endeavor, this channel, this this uh, resource that we're building here. We we are building it, even though I'm doing the physical work and research. It is your support, uh, liking and subscribing, that helps us grow the sangha, and by that supporting the propagation of this resource for the correct teachings. Hmm? This resource includes, of course, the website, the bookstore, the mandala store, so on, the, po the free podcast, all the info on Threefold Laws. All the links are in the description, so I won't go through them all. But it starts with just simply liking and subscribing. A few seconds and the impact for the YouTube engine is significant. If you can comment, if you have a uh, a question, don't you know? You can you can just do idle comments if you like. If that if that aids, <laughs> right? Your involvement, absolutely. I read them all. I read the emails. Some of you prefer to be private and just email me directly. That's fine. TLKSylvain at Gmail. But the comments um, are great for sharing insights and questions with the Sangha, because they're open to everybody's view, right? So um, I encourage you to do so. That also helps with the algorithm. But, you know, do it if you have something uh, to add, to question, to, to something of value. Um, I'm not looking for fans. <laughs> I'm just looking for people who are inspired to practice, encouraged to practice, with confidence and have legitimate questions. Maybe I didn't explain something right or I babbled a little too much. Let me know. We'll fix it. What's important is that you keep your practice strong, that you embrace it, really um, savor your practice. Don't rush it. And with that, I'm going to let you go. Please, uh, in an act of kindness, take care of your health and those around you. I'll see you in the next one, okay? Bye for now.